Welcome to The Thing About Austin, a podcast about Jane Austen's world. I'm Zan. And I'm Diane. And this episode, we're talking about annuities. This episode takes us to the very beginning of Sense and Sensibility. Mr. Henry Dashwood has passed away, but before his death, he made his son, John Dashwood, promise that he would take care of his stepmother and three younger half-sisters. So John starts out with the best of intentions and (laughs) plans to give each of his sisters a thousand pounds apiece. However, after discussing things with his wife, Fanny, that gets quickly downgraded to 500 pounds apiece. (laughs) So we've gone from 3,000 pounds total to 1,500 pounds total very quickly. And then that amount is also deemed excessive. So John brings up the possibility of an annuity to be paid out to his stepmother while she still lives. But Fanny does have some things to say about the annuity. I mean, Fanny has things to say about all of this. She has a lot of opinions. And so here is a small bit of her, her resistance to an annuity. If you observe, people always live forever when there is an annuity to be paid them. And she is very stout and healthy and hardly 40. An annuity is a very serious business. It comes over and over every year, and there's no getting rid of it. (laughs) You just have to pay people forever. It just, like, never goes away. (laughs) The the hardship, you know, Mm -hmm. the the immense hardship that Fanny feels here is something. (laughs) So what is Fanny talking about here with her resistance to an annuity? In basic terms, an annuity is an annual sum of money that is paid out to the annuitant. In today's terms, this can be something like a financial product that guarantees annual income for retirees or an insurance payout. There's actually a huge range of financial situations and products that this could cover. But for our purposes, we will be focused on annuities in Austin's time and specifically how it's being used within the context of the novel here. Right. So just as a bit of history trivia for you, according to the Oxford Dictionary of Local and Family History, the first state life annuities in England were granted in the 1690s. And in the context of Austin's novels, An annuity is generally the annual sum paid out for either a fixed term or a life or in perpetuity. These would often be laid out in legal terms in a will, like a parent or spouse making a provision for their spouse or children. It could also be a contract between living individuals, which is what we see being discussed by Fanny and John Dashwood. Annuities could also be paid out of a particular reserved fund, Or it could be what would be described as an unsecured fund, meaning you would just trust that the payer would have the funds available. And not surprisingly, the unsecured funding could lead to a lot of messy legal issues. You know, like, where's my annuity? Oh, there's no money left. Mm. Uh, Sorry. Awkward. In his article, The Early History of the Annuity, Edwin Kopf explains some of the different types of annuities from these earlier centuries. He writes, quote, the various types of annuities may be divided into two main classes, annuities certain and contingent annuities. The first, or annuity certain, 
is a series of payments made at equal intervals over a fixed period of years. So this would obviously be the scenario of someone paying out an annuity for five years. That's the end of that contract. The second type of annuity, and the one most relevant to the discussion the Dashwoods are having, would be the contingent annuity. Kopf goes on to describe it as follows. The date either of the first or the last payment depends upon some event, the time of whose occurrence cannot be foretold. Thus, annuities whose payments begin or end with the death of an individual are contingent annuities. The simplest of these is the whole life annuity, payments of which are made through the life of the individual. Annuities may be made contingent upon other circumstances, but those dependent upon life are by far the most common. And in this passage of Sense and Sensibility, we also get another example of the contingent annuity that would have been common during this era. So Fanny says, My mother was clogged with the payment of three to old superannuated servants by my father's will, and it is amazing how disagreeable she found it. Twice every year these annuities were to be paid, and then there was the trouble of getting it to them, and then one of them was said to have died and afterwards it turned out to be no such thing. My mother was quite sick of it. Oh, your life is so hard. This is so inconvenient. You cannot imagine. <laughs> it's especially bad because she's describing here the kind of annuity that would have been paid to older servants of long standing when they are no longer able to work or as Fanny so flatteringly puts it, become superannuated. Like, okay, <laughs> just classy. She's keeping it classy. So very. So this is essentially a retirement fund for people who put in a lifetime of service for very little pay. And it would be pretty small amount of money. So. Oh, yeah. We're talking like 10 pounds or something like that. And this is apparently just so devastatingly inconvenient to her. It's a hardship to even have to think about it, even though you would definitely have have like a solicitor taking care of all of this for you oh, anyway. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. You would have your quote unquote man of business, you know, like arranging mm -hmm. all of this for you. Uh, but just the mental load of having to think about giving anybody anything. It's just exhausting. <laughs> yeah. Fanny also points out the inconvenience of the fact that these funds can be paid twice a year or any other agreed upon timetable. So so long as the annual sum is distributed, but, you know, it yeah. could be quarterly, it could be twice yearly, whatever it is. And again, now that's twice a year where you have to be thinking about this. <laughs> oh, and I, I think it's funny that she also brings up the technicalities of when the contingent annuity would, would end. I mean, we're talking about, obviously, if the person who's supposed to be receiving the annuity dies, then, you know, obviously, you don't have to pay it anymore. But what's really revealing about the scene, what she's saying here, is that it reveals a lot about Fanny, but also about her mom, and that, uh -huh. that they're just awful people. They're just awful, because... These are annuities that her mother is legally obligated to fulfill based on a will, but she can be hardly bothered to even confirm whether the individual is still living before she cuts off the annuity. And so it's just, and then it's just also inconvenient that she has to like, oh, he turned out to be alive. Gosh, I have to keep paying that. It's given me such an abhorrence of annuities. Like, okay. Yeah. These people keep living and you have to keep paying them. And it's just, it's obnoxious. Okay, so let's now focus on the hypothetical annuity that particularly impacts the Dashwood women. During the 18th century, annuities would have been especially common in scenarios just like the one Austin lays out early on in Sense and Sensibility. 
A lot of this is depending on the financial context of the novel. And this is particularly well explained by Emma Juliet Cleary in her book, Jane Austen, The Banker's Sister. She writes, It was not until the very end of October 1811 that Sense and Sensibility was published. It appeared during a deep economic depression and could be described as Jane Austen's austerity novel. The reader is immediately and rapidly plunged into the details of inheritance in the Dashwood family. Norland Park is a fine estate in the county of Sussex, owned by a bachelor who lives with his sister. When the sister dies, he invites his nephew and his second wife and three daughters to share the home. They care for the old gentleman devotedly, but when he dies and the will is opened, it is found that the nephew, rather than being named heir, has only a life interest, and the estate will eventually go to his son by his first marriage, and in turn to the firstborn grandson, now a beguiling infant. In this telescoped account, packed into the first few pages, no sooner is the nephew, Mr. Henry Dashwood, introduced than he expires just one year after his rich uncle. All of this, therefore, leaves John Dashwood bound, loosely bound, we'll say, <laughs> bound by a verbal promise to his dying father to take care of the wife and daughters he's leaving behind. A promise that he obviously takes very seriously. And <laughs> Henry Dashwood just has to trust that John will interpret this as financially supporting these women. Mm -hmm. Ooh, I think we can see the writing on the wall here. Yeah. That work out for everyone. <laughs> in her article, Sense and Sensibility and the Lady's Law, Failure of Benevolent Paternalism, Phoebe A. Smith points out that it is not Mrs. Dashwood's husband, Henry, who fails to provide for her with a jointure, an annuity, or outright control of his estate. He is powerless because of his uncle's legal arrangements, which are rooted in the principle of primogeniture. This system was designed to keep property intact and to privilege male heirs over females. And we know from the text that the 7,000 pounds that he did have fully within his command, he did leave to her. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which, of course, Fanny is like very, she's just so quick to be like, oh, and you know that if he could have less them even more, he would have, you know, which is just like, <laughs> to like a son who's maybe already kind of thinking he might not be the favorite, like way to just like, you know, she knows exactly which buttons to push to be oh, like, yeah. oh, you, he didn't leave you anything out of that 7,000. He left that all to them. And it's like, yeah, because he just inherited a state that's, you know, like. Yeah. Weirdly, he thought you were provided for after that. Yeah, he wasn't too worried about it, actually. <laughs> So Smith goes on to argue that the issue of the annuity in Sense and Sensibility largely relies on the men and women in these systems inherently having an inclination towards benevolence and to genuinely wanting to take care of the people who are reliant upon them. Which, as we see in the example of Fanny giving about her mother complaining about these, like, very small legacies to long-standing <laughs> servants. And servants who just live forever. Mm-hmm. So she points out, quote, John, remembering his dying father's words, at first intends to fulfill the responsibilities of paternalism. The promise was given and must be performed. John's paternalistic role was common among the gentry in the 18th century, when provision for younger children was left to the discretion of their elder brother. You know, it's not all like Anthony Bridgerton, right, out here just worried about all of his many, many younger siblings. Yes, yes. And we, we just, we know very quickly that to rely on John and Fanny uh, to follow through with any kind of benevolence 
is not going to turn out well for the Dashwood women. And as a result, Mrs. Henry Dashwood and her daughters are really at the whim of people who will essentially choose primogeniture over people every time. And their own selves, obviously, above other people as well. Poor Harry San. Would you <laughs> deprive him? He, you don't even know. He might need this money someday. <laughs> oh, I just, it's not, it's not gonna, it's not gonna pull my heartstrings. I'm sorry. <laughs> So Smith really drives that point home when she writes, We see that Mrs. Dashwood receives no dower because of the old uncle's desire to secure the undivided estate in the male line of his family. In Fanny and John's discussion, we see that benevolent paternalism is vulnerable both to selfish motives often unrecognized and rationalized away and to justification of its subversion through invoking patriarchal ideology the importance of the transmission of property intact from male to male. Which, again, was, like, not uncommon, especially during this time, because when a woman married, her property was absorbed by her husband. Right. So, you know, the thinking is like, oh, we can't we can't will the estate to someone like Eleanor, because when she marries, then the estate it goes go to, her to her husband and mm-hmm. his family. So, like, that is part of the thinking. But, of course, what is being left out of this is that their brother has it within his power to also give them even yeah. if, like, he gets the estate, he still has, like, cash on hand that he could be giving right. them and is choosing right. not to. Yeah. And and again, it's I think that Smith's point, and I think a point that makes a lot of sense here, too, is that it's like this whole system is set up on, again, that dependency that people will actually want to take care of people around them. But with John and Fanny, they are only looking out for number one, and they are only looking out for that primogeniture because the fact that they do bring their son into the conversation so quickly is part of her justification, Fanny's justification for cutting the Dashwood women out. And kind of an interesting additional component to this to these scenes is that John and Fanny are not just talking about money uh, when they start talking about the annuity. They're not just talking about money, but they also start talking about life expectancy in the context of the annuity. So when John considers giving Mrs. Dashwood an annuity, Fanny is immediately there to point out that, again, people always live forever when there's an annuity to be paid to them. So she's really not interested in giving an annuity, an annuity because like, what if Mrs. Dashwood has a long life? She's so young and healthy. We can't risk it. <laughs> like, gross. Can you imagine having to pay her for years? Interestingly enough, by the mid-18th century, we see a real dedication to actuarial science specifically dedicated to things like annuities. So bring on the charts and tables. <laughs> a prominent figure in this trend was James Dodson. In 1754, Dodson published his work concerning the value of an annuity for life. And in 1757, he published a paper, A Table of Annuity Values. A tale of two annuity tables. <laughs> <laughs> That's the lesser known Dickens novel that you haven't heard of. <laughs> Publications like these would have been a resource one would consult before setting a contingent annuity, specifically a life annuity, for the exact reasons that John and Fanny ostensibly point out, what if people live forever? <laughs> like you're actually going into the annuity contract being like, okay, according to this, their life expectancy is only for X number of years. I can handle that annuity. Well, one particular actuarial table that would have been relevant to the discussion that John and Fanny are having would have been the Carlisle table. 
according to Daniel D. Squire's article, Actuarial Issues in the Novels of Jane Austen. He writes, The best contemporary mortality table was the Carlyle table published in 1815 and based on lists of deaths from 1779 to 1787 in Carlisle, England. Squire goes on to point out that by using the Carlisle table, we can actually dig a bit deeper into what Fanny and John are discussing in this passage. So, this is from the novel. To be sure, said she, it is better than parting with 1,500 pounds at once. But then, if Mrs. Dashwood should live 15 years, we shall be completely taken in. 15 years! My dear Fanny, her life cannot be worth half that purchase. Oh, these two. <laughs> Certainly not. But if you observe, people always live forever when there is an annuity to be paid them. And she is very stout and healthy and hardly 40. So that's going back to the quote that we read at the top of the episode. So, they're, yeah, they're essentially discussing, would it be more prudent to pay out a lump sum of 1500 or pay out that over, you know, an, an annual sum? And they want to know what would be the cheapest route. Like they are like unequivocally talking about what's going to be the least expensive option here. I mean, really, it's all on the way towards like the option is nothing. So. Yes. Yes. So if Mrs. Dashwood lives 15 years, it is, in fact, the exact same amount as what John is proposing with the 1,500 pounds. In fact, as Squire points out, in that case, they would merely have paid out the same 1,500 pounds over a longer period of time and would have benefited from any investment income in the meantime. Uh, then we have Squire, who's consulting the Carlisle table. He's using the, the table to identify Mrs. Dashwood's life expectancy. And so this is, this is what Squire says. Dashwood seems to feel it is unlikely that his 40-year-old stepmother will live for another 15 years. The Carlisle table reveals that Dashwood is pessimistic in his assessment of life expectancy. Because the table is based on a combined population with 50% females, it is not possible to distinguish between male and female mortality, but women of that time period experienced lower mortality at the high ages than men. So it might be possible to add a year or two to Mrs. Dashwood's life expectancy. We're obviously not here to give Fanny Dashwood or John Dashwood any kind of credit. None. None. No points. Apologies to anyone who's a big fan of theirs. <laughs> that is not what we're here to do. But again, within the context of this conversation, strictly speaking, Mrs. Dashwood would likely live longer than 15 years. So like Fanny's not wrong, but like she's <laughs> not right, you know? Right. Yeah. Yeah. In the moral sense. <laughs> Her moral high ground is in the negatives. So as a result, the annuity might technically extend beyond the 15 years or 1,500 pounds mark. And again, let's all remember that that 1,500 pounds is already half of the initial 3,000 that he was originally planning. Yeah. I mean, and, and let's remember that the annuity would still allow John and Fanny to gain interest on those hypothetical 1,500 pounds and offset the discrepancy. So, you know, either way, this changes nothing about how awful these two characters are. Like, absolutely brilliant writing on Austin's part, but oh, just for sure. absolutely gross conversations. I mean, one of my favorite things is the way that it just kind of like starts to unravel, right? We start with 3,000 and then it goes down to 1,500 and then it goes down to a possible annuity. And then that is scrapped to like an occasional gift of like 50 pounds here or there. And then it's like, oh, I'll help them move their stuff and give them some like fish and game fish and when game. it's convenient, mm -hmm. you know, like it just keeps getting downgraded. But one of the things that just always makes me laugh 
And when I say laugh, like laugh in a, wow, you're really awful kind of way. Fanny bringing up, oh, well, and then when they get married, you know, they won't need it anyway. And like, yeah, even though Fanny in particular is the type of person who is very, very well aware of the way that the marriage market works. She's very aware of the the kind of financial value that a woman who is hoping to marry well would need to bring to the table. Yes. And the Dashwood girls don't have that. They don't have big dowries. So yeah. Well, and it's like and it's like a catch-22 because she later in the novel is like, Edward cannot be with Eleanor because, Mm -hmm. you know, she doesn't like Eleanor. But also like she's going to contribute nothing to the financial coffers. And Mm -hmm. so she's the one who's put Eleanor in that situation. Yep. But yeah, she's very eager to try to like absolve her husband's absolve his guilt. I mean, like, I don't know, the pea-sized amount of guilt this man is feeling right now. The momentary fleeting thought he dedicated to this. exactly. Just the whisper of guilt that he might be feeling over not fulfilling his promise to his father. But yeah, the way that she's like, well, they'll get married. And, you know, like, so they'll be taken care of. You are not naive. You know exactly Uh what you're saying. Like, these Uh women will have no prospects. Yeah. Bringing that up as if that's, like, an excuse for your behavior. solution or something like that. Yes. Yes. So we have a few parting thoughts on the way Austin discusses annuities in Sense and Sensibility from some of the scholars that we have previously mentioned. The first comes from Clary. Quote, Jane Austen is, of course, famous or notorious for the preoccupation with annual incomes in her fiction and the precision with which she calibrates social standing in accordance with income. This computational quality is found in all her novels, but in none more so than Sense and Sensibility, in which monetizing of the characters takes on the dimension of a topical allegory. Yeah, that is excellent. Because we do see we do see the characters literally being monetized in chapter yep. two of Sense and Sensibility. Uh, and then a final thought from, from Squire, where he writes, many 19th century novels deal with issues of wealth. And indeed, there is nothing inherently actuarial in writing about money. Austin is notable, however, in writing explicitly about the connections of wealth to life expectancy. She understood that the value of an annuity depended on the life expectancy of the payee. She understood that it was possible to put a present value on a series of uncertain future payments. She understood that inheritances were more valuable if the rich old uncle lay on his deathbed. Although Jane Austen was no mathematician and certainly no actuary, her novels address a wealth of actuarial issues that maintain their relevance for actuaries in, modern, in the modern world. And I, I just kind of love that. Present your materials on Sense of Sensibility at the next actuarial conference. Like, that's what I'm hearing. <laughs> I can think of nothing better. I will attend that conference. Bring it on. If you have any thoughts about annuities and how they play out in Sense of Sensibility, or, you know, just thoughts on Fanny and John Dashwood and why they are the worst, <laughs> you can contact us via Instagram at the thing about Austin and on Twitter at Austin underscore things. You can also check out our website, thethingaboutaustin.com, and email us at thethingaboutaustin at gmail.com. And you can also check out our merch for the podcast on Redbubble. And for that, you can go to aboutaustin.redbubble.com. Stay tuned for next episode when we'll be talking about Henry Tilney's great coat. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.